is The Next Trip Podcast with Aviation Insiders Doug and Drew. Together, with more than 40 years of industry experience, they are creating a network for other app geeks and travel enthusiasts to obsess about all things aviation. All thoughts and opinions are their own. G'day, welcome to Boarding Pass 212, operating on December 18th, 2023. This is Doug, an airline pilot, and I'm here with my buddy Drew, an airline ops manager. We're here to discuss aviation topics from an industry insider's perspective. Drew, we're going to get to our weeks here in just a second, and there's some fun. I'm curious to hear about your top golf experience, but first, we need to introduce our special guest. We're joined this week by Ganesh Sitaraman. Ganesh is a law professor and the director of Vanderbilt Policy Accelerator for Political Economy and Regulation. He just released a new book titled Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It. We're going to speak with Ganesh about his thoughts and ideas regarding aviation, the aviation industry a little bit later. Ganesh, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Drew and I usually begin each episode by discussing our weeks, which are usually dominated by something aviation or travel related. You're in the middle of a busy book tour. First of all, thanks for taking the time to speak to us in, in the middle of this. But I'm guessing that a book tour means lots of travel. So how's it going so far? It does. Uh, mostly it's been good. The book tour, though, started off with a flight that was an hour and 20 minute delayed. So I thought that was a little bit poetic <laughs> for, for a book called Why Flying is Miserable. Our friends have been telling us you've been on other podcasts. I saw you on CNBC. But then I, I, I made a decision not to listen to the other podcast because I didn't want I wanted everything to be fresh and I didn't want I didn't want to know too much <laughs> other That's than great. reading your book. I didn't want my mind to be clouded with any other ideas. Same, but our friends keep texting us yeah. with things that you've talked about on other podcasts. So we're, I'm, I'm trying to just tune it out so that I, as Drew said, that we have a fresh perspective. <laughs> I love all right, it. let's I'll, get. I'll, I'll try to say all fresh stuff. Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> let, let's get my boring week out of the way. I was tasked with uh, creating a offsite event for our team at operations. So I chose Top Golf because it looked like a nice venue. It looked like fun. I don't play golf, so I was concerned. So I asked Doug, it's like, what do you think about this? Well, and hold what on, did you hold say? on. I, I, was, I was supposed to introduce this because I was going to ask you about your work in quotations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Top Golf. <laughs> Ganesh, do you play golf? I don't. I mean, okay, like, yeah. I have, but I don't. So, yeah, know, no, no, I don't good. either. Yeah. I don't either. And I was concerned and I told Doug and I'm like, I can just serve people drinks and food. That's fine. I'll be fine. But uh, what did you say about uh, you arranged this at your work too? When I was doing those videos in Atlanta, the video project in Atlanta, we went to Top Golf as like a, a bonding with the team. One of the other guys, Delta Pilot, he and I both play golf and we're like, hey, we're, we're teaching these people <laughs> how to actually like even hold a club and how to swing the club because they're getting up there like it's a baseball bat. Mm. And we're like, no, here's how you hold it. <laughs> we're teaching them. And they end up beating us. <laughs> the, the non-golfers who 10 minutes before didn't yeah. even know how to hold a golf club beat us well that's what happened so i was i felt like an idiot i was hitting the grass i was hitting everything other than the ball i almost swung it at people <laughs> the first but this is the secret so i'm like i'm gonna get good at this so i just went to a berth where no one was and i just started swinging left and right and eventually i got it so the secret was don't overthink it follow through and then once you get it keep doing it again and again and top golf for those of you not in the u.s it's this venue where people have parties and you know they drink beer and golf it's not really it, it's not a golf course you it's hit like the, bowling it's, but for golf it's like that, that's the way i describe it you basically get points for hitting the ball and landing somewhere <laughs> so anyway it was really fun we'll probably do it again and i might actually um play golf with you and we'll see at real golf and we'll see real golf we yeah <laughs> I'll bring you. I'll bring you to the easiest course out here. How about that? We'll start with that. Fine. 
All right, so what's this um, beautiful pictures from Australia with sunny weather and humidity? I see. Yeah, I had a, a beach day. Actually, I'm they're they're in the middle of a heat wave right now. It was a hundred the day before we got there, and it was a hundred the day after or the day that we left. It was like eighty degrees, eighty five, sunny. It was gorgeous, but it's Christmas and it's so weird. And it's spring or uh, summer break down there, so all the kids are out of school. The beaches were packed. It's just such a, a weird feeling being somewhere tropical, somewhere warm, when it's supposed to be cold and snowy and Christmas. It probably doesn't seem right. No, it doesn't. I mean, they they have Christmas trees all over the place with palm trees right behind them. I, I guess it's like Christmas in the islands or Christmas in Miami. But as someone who grew up in the Midwest where it's cold and snowy and you, you want to watch Hallmark movies <laughs> and snuggle up with, with your hot chocolate, being in Australia for Christmas, it's just really weird. We're, we're talking about it as a crew, though. That's what they know. That's what they're used right. to. For them, Christmas is a summer holiday. It's almost like 4th of July. Like imagine if 4th of July was in December, that that would be really weird to us, but we are used to cold, dark nights well, for Christmas. They're used to summer. Well, you say that. So I, I was born in Sri Lanka. I go there all the time and their Christmas, I would say, is more festive than ours. Now it's sunny, there's palm trees, but they get Christmas trees from someplace and the, all the Christmas foods and Ganesha, I, I don't know if you, I mean, we have like a special bread that we eat in Christmas morning and they have wine, like every house makes their own mulled wine. It's very festive, even though it's a hundred degrees outside. <laughs> I, I will say though, I, this is one of my favorite times of the year to travel. Yes, I hate being away from my family during the holidays, but I don't know what it is. It's just something special about the way the airports decorate, about the way the hotels decorate, uh, walking just through downtown Sydney, all the storefronts, all the businesses, they all had the decorations up. So even if it's 80 degrees and sunny or zero degrees and freezing, mm -hmm. there's just something magical about this time of year with, with all the decorations and all the lights. And I, I don't know, I, I just like seeing the different cultures around the holidays. Yeah, it's a good time. Ganesh, another thing that we always do with our guests is to vet their aviation credentials. Usually we're testing their AvGeek level. Are you familiar with the term AvGeek? Uh, I guess I am now, but <laughs> wasn't before just now. <laughs> okay, good. So fresh meat. <laughs> All right. So even if you're not a self-proclaimed AvGeek, which you just found out what that means, looking at your biography, Ganesh, you have some underlying symptoms, if you will, that we're bound to identify and diagnose through the course of this episode. You've worked on presidential campaigns, which inevitably involve a lot of travel. You're a member of the FAA's Commercial Space Transportation Advisory Committee, and you wrote a book about the airline industry. What got you interested in aviation? In part, I think I've always been interested in it to some extent. As, as somebody who travels a lot and has traveled a lot since I was a kid, there's something really exciting and miraculous about the experience of, of flying. Um, and I start the book with that. I say flying is a miracle. I mean, it's a really astonishing thing that we that we get to do. But at the same time, you know, what, what I'll say is I, I'm a law professor and I teach and write about regulation and economic policy. Over the years, I've just wondered, you know, why does flying have to be this way where there are a lot of things that are also crummy about the experience? And when COVID happened and there were all the cancellations and other uh, issues in the industry last year, um, and the year before, uh, you know, it really struck me as this is a real opportunity to dig a little bit into how policy works in the airline industry. And so I decided to write this book um, about <laughs> airline history, regulation, policy, and and that 
I think made me more of an av geek uh, than mm-hmm. than maybe ever before, <laughs> having spent a lot of time mm-hmm. uh, going back through all of the laws and all of the legislative debates over, you know, now basically a hundred years of of history um, on the policy side, and and learned a lot about it, and and all kind of designed to ask the question, you know, how did we get to where we are? Which I think for me was inherently interesting as someone who flies a lot, and I think for a lot of other people, um, there's just a lot that you know, you learn when you dig into the history that, that maybe you didn't know before. And, and that's pretty cool. Ganesh, you speak critically about the current state of the industry in your book, but you also did what few others have done. You actually took the time to research the industry and you proposed changes on how to make it better. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But you must have an underlying love, admiration or respect for the industry to be willing to try and fix it. So with that in mind, dig deep here, think back, (laughs) what is your favorite aviation moment in your life, that one moment that stands out above the rest? Ooh, that's that's a hard question. You know, I, I, I'm not sure if this is the one. I'll give you the one that one that comes to mind. I was once uh, I took a trip to Greenland and flew wow. in and out of uh, Kangerlussuaq Airport, which is uh, a very small airport, um, able to take big planes, but a small airport. That was just an extraordinary thing flying over flying over Greenland and seeing the the ice all the way across and and then landing into that airport right off of a fjord and. Um, that that was really a, a, a magical moment. Do you remember what kind of airplane you were on? Oh, we're, we're testing your credentials. <laughs> I I, I, uh, I I don't remember the kind of airplane I was on. Um, I don't. It was a big one, uh, and I'm sure I could look it up, but <laughs> offhand, I don't remember. Was this a, a like a a tourist like a sightseeing flight, or was it a, an airline route? Yeah. So I um I went. Uh, I was going to go on a trip dog sledding across western greenland um for a few days and wow. so uh so i did as that. one does um and to do that you have, yeah. to, you have to get to greenland and so yeah so i flew into congerlusak went across to to Sisimiat on the coast and then and then took a short flight back to congerlusak before heading out and it was an amazing trip i mean you get to see the northern lights and you're really in a remote remote part of the world uh where there's just not not a lot of settlements um, of people in, in any direction, really. Okay. Okay, we're going to okay. dig into this yeah. a, a little bit more. I have more questions. Like Everything <laughs> that you say opens up some more questions. Right. Greenland Greenland is part of Denmark. When you landed, did you go through Danish customs, or how did that work? So I landed in... Uh, I flew from Denmark, so I went through it in Copenhagen. Oh, yeah. okay. And I spent some time in Copenhagen, because okay. you're going to go all the way. I wanted to, I hadn't been to Copenhagen before, so I wanted to see, see the place. And so I, I went there um, on both ends. If you knew about this, this could be a complete separate segment, just this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to get to Ganesh's book and our main topic shortly. But first, we have some news to cover. Drew, any updates on the Spirit JetBlue and Alaska-Hawaiian mergers? Well, Ganesh, we'll, we'll spare you and the listeners the misery of us talking about a merger this week. The only update, I will have a couple updates. There's some mergers happening. We're going to keep it short. Now, I want to get Ganesh's reading on these. We're waiting on a ruling on the Spirit JetBlue merger Probably won't get anything on that till early next year, which is not that far away. So stay tuned on that. On the Alaska-Hawaiian merger, one of our contributors, John, of travel blog FlyRun.Fun, he confirms the following. So I think we knew this, but he, he actually confirmed it. Hawaiian will be merged into the Alaska Air Group. That includes Alaska Airlines and Horizon, and it won't be a subsidiary per se. John explains that this will not be like IAG, Air France, KLM, and the Lufthansa Group, where the individual airlines are operational subsidiaries of a holding company. The airline will have a single FAA operating certificate. I'm assuming it's going to be Alaska Airlines. 
is their op- operating certificate unless they change their name. They will be based in Seattle with Alaska CEO. They've already announced that Hawaiian's mileage program is being merged into Alaska's. So Hawaiian's mileage program will basically disappear and be absorbed into that. And Honolulu is Alaska's new hub. They're not talking about Hawaiian's new hub being Seattle. So all things are pointing to one company. Ganesh, do you want to... Doug and I have a fake fight. Doug believes they'll keep their separate identities. I think that they will keep their separate identities for a short time and they're going to become one airline and be better able to compete doug any anything before we ask anisha's take on this well i understand what john is saying about the operating certificate and how it's different than iag which is iberia british airways all those horizon operates separately from alaska even though they're wholly owned the pilots at horizon are a different group of pilots than the pilots at alaska yes when you buy a ticket to uh, I don't know, Eugene, Oregon, you're going to be on Horizon. You're mm-hmm. not going to be on Alaska Mainline Metal. But if you think about it, though, those are still, even though they're under the same holding company, they're still operating a little bit separately. And I think that Hawaiian could do that as well. And yeah, they're not saying Seattle is a new Hawaiian hub because you're probably not going to see a lot of Hawaiian metal operating out of Seattle anyways. You're going to see that in, in Honolulu or Maui. Not so much in Seattle. This is consolidation, Ganesh. So this, you know, we talk, you talked about in your book where we had several carriers. Now we're down to four big ones as far as the network carriers. Southwest is kind of a stretch. It's not really a network carrier, but it is kind of. You can make a connection. This would be a stronger fifth biggest airline, so either Spirit, JetBlue, or Hawaiian, Alaska. What do, you, what do you think that does for competition and prices and the things you talk about in the book? You know, I think the first question for for both of these mergers is whether they're going to go through. I mean, as you mentioned, JetBlue Spirit, you know, we'll we'll see. I, I was a little surprised, in fact, that they announced this merger right at the same time as that trial was ending. Um, as you know, you mm. think maybe you'd wait to see what's going to happen in the in the case first, and that that might have some impact on how you want to think through. Uh, executing on the merger. But I, I think there's a real question there because, you know, the Justice Department has very clearly said that they're going to scrutinize these mergers to a greater degree now. And JetBlue Spirit is, is you know, the example of that um, actually going to trial on that merger. So I wonder where where that'll go in this case, too. You know, I think there's an argument that some have made, um, or at least that I've seen reported, and I, I won't say that I'm an expert on on um, Alaska or Hawaii or their routes or, or how they how they operate. But but I've at least seen reported that, you know, there's a little bit less overlap there than there is in the JetBlue Spirit context. But, you know, part of the Justice Department's arguments there were they're going to, you know, reduce some number of routes. There's going to be fewer seats. Um, there's plans for increasing prices. Um, if that's part of the plan that comes out in the, you know, Alaska-Hawaii situation, uh, th- that looks, you know, a little bit more problematic for them. And so, um, I do think there's a question about how this will work. In the broader sense, you know, what's really striking, and we could we could talk more about this as we get into the history, is after deregulation in 1978, there was at the same time a move to significantly weaken antitrust enforcement. And they came from the same economic principles and philosophy, which was basically government activity related to the economy is something we shouldn't have as much of. That means we should deregulate, we should privatize, but it also means we should have less antitrust enforcement. 
And the same folks associated with the Chicago School of Economics um, were pushing both of these things, weaker antitrust and deregulation. This was a thing that even some of the big proponents of deregulation were concerned about. You know, 10 years after deregulation, Alfred Kahn, one of the great proponents of it, blamed consolidation in the industry over the 80s on the fact that the Reagan Justice Department had not seriously enforced antitrust laws. I think that's a bit unfair uh, of him to do because, of course, he knew at the same time it was like the same people pushing both deregulation and less antitrust. So it's a little, you know, unfair to say they should have done one and not the other when they were they were shaped by the same ideas. What is interesting about that is, you know, we never really have had serious antitrust enforcement since deregulation in the industry. And I think that's part of the story why we've seen, you know, this massive sets of waves of consolidation because, you know, as, as I talk about in the book, the economics of the industry are such that bigger is better. It's better to have a bigger network. It's better to have more scale. It's more efficient for the airlines. It makes them them more competitive. But at the same time, from a public policy perspective, bigness is bad in a lot of ways. It means that you can have monopolistic exploitation. It means uh, often declines in quality of service, um, loss of service to certain places. And so the tension for a policymaker, and I think what's weird to me about the airline's argument that they need to be bigger in order to be competitive with the really big ones, is that in some ways they're admitting this isn't a competitive industry, in which case they should be regulated. Because if you don't have the discipline of market competition to prevent exploitative practices and abuses of power against consumers, well, the other option is regulation. And and you got to have one or the other, because otherwise you have abuses of power with 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 no benefits to the public. And so I, I think it's a weird place. The, the admission of this says, you know, maybe they are a kind of oligopoly industry and, and competition can't work very well here. So that's sort of how I think about it is, is in the long debate between our airlines, utilities, or competitive businesses, the fact that we have this much consolidation and it keeps happening is in some ways evidence that this isn't like being a restaurateur or uh, or starting a little retail shop. You know, you can have a hundred restaurants on the same street. Like, doesn't work with airlines the same way. All right, Ganesh, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna pause you right there. This is all, as we say on the show, podcast gold. The, you're you're playing right into a lot of the questions that we we're gonna ask in a little bit. We do have just a couple news stories though that we have to get to first. So let's navigate away from that fake fight, Drew, <laughs> and we're gonna talk about navigation. GPS interference is on the rise around the world. Nyada is taking note spoofing or tricking an aircraft and its crew into thinking its location is other than where it actually is, is becoming a major issue, especially in the Middle East. Global industry leaders are expected to meet early in January to discuss safety regarding what we're calling spoofing. Most of the erroneous signals have been attributed to cyber hackers, but some worry that state-sponsored players might also be to blame. Spoofing is when GPS signals are jammed and airplane navigation equipment presents false information to flight crews, thus manipulating the flight path to make the crews think they are flying along an intended route, when in actuality they are miles off course. This can be especially dangerous considering a history of bad outcomes when planes unexpectedly veer off course. The most famous example is Korean Korean Air Flight 7, which was shot down over Soviet airspace after the crew made a navigational mistake. While this was not the result of spoofing, mistakes made today by unknowing crews have the possibility of the same outcome which is why the governing body is planning to address this issue before something bad does happen. Okay, so thank you for adding deep fake airline traffic to my list of anxieties, <laughs> Doug, on top of everything deep else. Deep fake. 
easy solution to this, have have a, uh, a redundant system because you have GPS. Have something else that verifies that the GPS is accurate. So you may have to uh, dust off the sextant on your 777, take it out, dust it off, and make sure it matches with the GPS. Do you have a sextant yeah. on board? <laughs> we don't have a sextant, no. <laughs> and the, the way that we used to navigate was by VORs and TACANs. And I think we've talked about this, the omnidirectional, you, you see the mm-hmm. huge upside or the, the big white cones, really tall all over the place. Like sometimes just in a farmer's field somewhere, not even by an airport. Well, we have those it in the U S be... but how many of those are used overseas? Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, most, most places overseas have completely gone away from that. Or even, especially in the middle East where air, air travel is a relatively new thing in that region. They never really built those to begin with. It it was more see and avoid type flying. And now with the advent of GPS, well, advent 30 years ago of GPS, now airplanes don't really need those. We we call them raw nav aids. They Mm -hmm. they don't really need those because we're using GPS. A solution here would be some sort of a filter, create some sort of a, a filter that is able to identify bad or erroneous signals it's not it's not an easy or a quick fix unfortunately well you have you have gps and you also have your standby compass just add a couple more things that would that would double that would cross check it or maybe even have if it's delta in atlanta at the control center they would also be tracking the plane if that if what they have doesn't match with what the plane is reading that would also be a signal that there might be interruption in that but yep another thing to worry about that's great all right (laughs) Um, all right, real quickly, our final news story is a go-around for something that we've been talking about extensively over the last couple of years, business travel. Delta CEO Ed Bastian says that fears that business travel has died is overstated. In a recent interview, Bastian said that business travel has not returned to pre-pandemic levels and likely will not return completely for some time, if ever. But he also said that he's not worried about it due to the fact that hybrid work has replaced business travel. According to Bastian, business travel has plateaued at around 20% below pre-pandemic levels. However, premium seat sales have surpassed the 2019 high watermark, in part due to hybrid work. The thing that people miss is while people aren't traveling for managed business, they're traveling on the road at a much higher level because mobility has been at a premium because of hybrid opportunities to travel and bring your office with you. Business is far above anything we ever saw pre-COVID. We're just managing and looking at it differently, Bastian said. Doug, I, I don't know if you've seen this, Ganesh and Doug. It's very hard to get a premium seat on these airlines. Doug and I travel standby when we when we fly. And I wanted to go to the Christmas markets in Europe. There is hardly a premium seat on 20 different flights to Europe from my city. So something's happening where this premium traffic is still very active. We've talked about how each quarter when the airlines release their results and, and they talk about it, they talk about these premium seat sales and how they're through the roof to the point where they're taking out some economy seats and putting in more premium seats uh, around the world. This is not just something in the United mm, States. Yep. This is a this is a global trend, the, the trending to the premium seats. Ganesh, I know you talk in your book about proliferation of economy plus seating and how that that's a direct result of all of the ways that the industry has gone. So what are your thoughts on all these premium seats that are being sold? In, in the past, the company would pay for it. W- what I'm seeing or, or reading into this is it's more the individuals now are, are paying for that upgraded experience. I, I think it's really interesting. I mean, one one part of it, you know, I, I guess I'm a little hesitant to, to completely speculate, but now I'm going to speculate. Um, 
one part of it might be uh, to to fit in line with with my book that you know if the experience of being in basic economy gets so bad, <laughs> you might want to pay more to be in a slightly better uh, situation. And, and so maybe there's a component of this that you know more people are willing to pay more because um, the the misery of flying in the back of the plane is uh, has has gotten to be worse, and they and they don't want to pay for that. A second possibility is you know when you think about broader trends, um, I'd be interested in knowing in terms of the data who are these people who are flying. Uh, and, and, you know, if you think about kind of widening trends of inequality, um, who's benefited in the last, you know, handful of years, uh, as, you know, the Fed's policies have really, um, you know, helped, for example, uh, uh, kind of at least in some of the things I've, I've read, um, you know, boomer era folks who are capital, uh, rich, you know, maybe there's a lot more liquid cash that folks have in those places and they're willing to splurge more, but it's not Mm. actually, you know, your everyday traveler um, or even family who's going to, you know, save up for a while to take that big vacation trip. It may be that they're not doing that because the prices are too high for them, but actually you have a different you know category of folks who are doing it. So I'd be interested in seeing how that breaks down. But but I think that's an interesting shift in this kind of post-COVID world, uh, that it's less business travel and, and more people willing to pay just for their ordinary travel. Sure. Question about that, though, you talk about the travel or the the inequality when it comes to finances and things like that. But wouldn't in 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 a way where you have like a four cabin setup, let's say you have business class, you have premium economy, you've got the extra legroom seats to come with free drinks, and you've got main economy in the back. How is that different than you show up at a store and you can buy four different variations of the same product, you can get the luxury version which is a lot nicer, or you can just get the economy or, or the, the cheap version. In, in a way, isn't that kind of how the industry has gone, where you want to get from point A to point B, and you have a plethora of options in how you, how you do that. If you don't want to spend the money for the premium, then you do sit in the back. If you want a little bit more, you can pay extra for it. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's you know, that differentiation is, is certainly what's happened. I think the question that that I raise in the book, and I think when you talk to people um, who travel, one of the things that people are frustrated about is, you know, what's the package that I'm getting and how much unbundling has been done? You know, and so, you know, you imagine you're going to take a thousand mile 2,000 mile, you're going to take a really long flight across the country, or you're going to go overseas. You know, the idea that you have to pay to check a bag or to bring an extra bag on a flight where you're going overseas, like, that, there's a, something a little crazy about that, because how many people, you know, maybe you take a day trip from New York to D.C., right? That's a short flight. You can make that trip. You can fly back the same day. You don't need to bring a bag. But how many people are going, you know, on these really long distance flights and are not staying overnight, you know, one day? That's a little... So, you know, there's a place where if what you do is you charge people for all these extra things and you make it also so complicated to understand what's even the package that I'm getting. And it's different for different airlines. You know, there's different fare classes, which have all these different kinds of uh, qualifications to them about what you can use and when and how. Um, And then you add on top of that, that some of these prices change too. Mm -hmm. You know, if you buy it on Tuesday morning or Tuesday evening or two weeks from now, or, and I think the combination of all of those things, it's the complexity around it that we know in other contexts from, you know, psychological research and, and, and there is a cognitive load that's hard for people when you have to make a decision and you have too many options with too many variations and it becomes hard to just figure out what's even going on here. And, and you know, when you when you add to this, there's some people who think, 
that the airlines shouldn't also have to offer a kind of clear price of here's the all in price for everything with taxes and fees and everything. If you take away that rule, now you also can't compare prices anymore because when you look for the price, there's going to on top of that be all these additional things. You know, it's all of these kinds of things that make the experience frustrating to people who don't who, who let's say, to, to you know, put it in terms of the podcast, who who aren't av geeks, who don't want to spend all their time figuring this mm-hmm. out, but actually just say, like, I just want to take a trip. <laughs> and like, does it have to be this hard? And so it's not necessarily the differentiation, but maybe there are some ways we could have some basic standards around that. So even if you're in basic economy, legroom should be a certain minimum across the board. So you're always confident you're going to have some amount of legroom and it can't, you know, be shrinking uh, decade after decade as as it has been. Um, there are things like that, you know, certain amount of baggage, certain amount of, you know, you're always going to get some. I think there's a place where we could get to where you could still have some differentiation, but there'd be more confidence that people would have in what they're getting. And and that could help, you know, make things a little bit easier for folks. Yeah, I, I do agree about the transparency because I've noticed over the last year or two, a lot of hotels now have the option when you're booking, you can click the button, include taxes. It used <laughs> to be you would just see the the mm-hmm. room the nightly room rate and then right. you would click it and then there's 60 bucks on top of that for taxes. I have it in all my profiles now. I have it set up like auto, show me the price with the taxes. That way I know what the all-in prices when when I'm shopping and, and comparing between different well, rooms. Well you might not even night. you might not even know the all in price even then because you know I just stayed at a hotel on my on my book tour. They also have these these junk fees resort which they fees. like to call them mm-hmm. resort, resort fees. fees. Yeah. And it's like you yeah. know uh you know that's like you can't choose not to do it even not if I'm not going to use yeah. the gym, I'm not going to use your swimming pool or whatever. Like right. I would happily not pay the resort fee except it's not optional. And at the point that it's not optional they should put it in the regular fee because, you know, right. but they don't tell you what it is before. They don't put it in. If you're trying to compare prices, you know, they'll have it in small print somewhere. It's it's much harder to actually compare prices in an easy way. And that's the kind of thing, again, that, you know, there's no reason for that if what you are thinking about is a well-functioning market because a well-functioning market means you should be able to compare prices easily. Mm-hmm. Um, right. What it is is a way for them to make it harder for all of us to see what the real price is. And some set of people probably end up booking the hotels and then are surprised by these extra fees that are tacked on. But by then they've already bought it or they're too far down the line and they just do it anyway. I mean, that's kind of exploitative and it's an unfair practice. And I, I think that's the kind of thing that there's there's really no good justification for that. Like I Drew could... with his $60 <sighs> bag on Frontier. Oh yeah, so you know exactly what you're saying. It is unfair and it, and it, it hurts the... The poorest. It, it hurts the 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 once a year flyer. So we we did a flight on two on was it three or four low fare carriers. We're half geeks. We didn't know what to expect. <laughs> we expected a bag fee on one, but there was nothing. And then the other one, we were so concerned. It, it just was not a good feeling. I mean, you really felt like you didn't know what you were going to be hit with. So I think we both agree it should be transparent. If they're going when you buy the ticket what the fees will be. But then again, if we don't talk about regulation, maybe that will push people to the airlines that do offer free stuff or, or stuff that's included. So wouldn't the market just fix that with people going to airlines that let you check bags for free or take a carry-on? Great question. I think it's the it's a perfect example of how airlines are different than other industries. And this was a thing, I mean, let, let me, slight digression. For hundreds of years, people thought, 
that some industries were just different than others. And the basic idea was that, you know, in some industries, say you're making coffee mugs or you run a restaurant, competition works. You know, there could be lots of people who make coffee mugs. You have lots of restaurants on the same street. No big deal. But in other industries, competition's not really going to work very well. And that's because scale matters a lot, because there's geographic constraints or restrictions. Um, and these rules, the, the, the idea that there's some differences really go back to English law in the 13th century, where they recognize, you know, you run the wharf at a port, um, you're an innkeeper, you know, on a road where there's not much uh, other travel. You know, over time, it was there were a whole bunch of businesses like this. And people said, actually, these ones are different because people don't really have choices. Mm. And you can't really say, oh, I'm just going to start an entirely new port because that's really hard to do. It's really expensive. There may not be deep water, right? There's all these constraints on where you could put a port. And, and so airlines were thought of as one of these industries in the 30s by the people who, who wanted to regulate them in Congress, and, uh, and that's how it operated from the 30s to the 70s. But this is a perfect example of this where, in theory, if we were you know taking an Econ 101 class, you'd say, oh, well, the market will solve this. There'll just be another flight. But it turns out you might not have any other airline options to go between those two cities. Mm. And you might not have them at the time you want to go or on the day you want to go. Or maybe there's no options at all because there's only one airline that flies that route. So in that case, consumers are stuck. And what that means is you just have to do whatever the airline says because what are you going to do? You're going to walk? I mean, you're going to drive? I mean, and, and if the you know if it's a long way, you probably can't do that stuff. And I think that's the challenge is it's not just doable to say – Let's just start an airline and we'll we'll fly that route. Like you know, as we were talking about before with the, with the mergers, you know, you'll just get pushed out by the bigs, and um, and and that's a real problem. Well, I wrote here. It's time for our main topic this week. We've been basically <laughs> talking about the main topic all throughout, which has been perfect. Yeah. We're going to deep dive into why flying is miserable and how to fix it. Ganesh, our listeners may have heard us speak about deregulation in the past, but they might not be completely aware aware of how the industry evolved from its infancy with the mail routes to where we are today. In your book, you mentioned, in, in quotes, three different policy regimes. You also gave us a historical review of the airline industry. Drew, why don't we just do a quick recap, real quick recap of where we got to or how we got to where we are today. Yeah, so we're put, we're laying this up for our listeners. But Ganesh, I want to thank you. I, I, I got my aviation degree like 30 years ago. So this was a great review of commercial aviation and, and the start of it in the U.S. Let's outline it for a recap for us and for our listeners. So in 1925, the Airmail Act of 1925 authorized sub- subsidies for airlines to carry U.S. mail. 1934, the Airmail Act of 1934 required airlines to divest themselves of other phases of aviation. For example, United was forced to separate into United Airlines and Boeing Aircraft Company. In 1938, we had the Civil Aeronautics Act of 1938 that created what would become the Civil Aeronautics Board, which we're going to talk a lot about, which regulated the airline industry, including who was allowed to enter and what rates they could charge. Does Ganesh want us to go back to that? We're going to find out. <laughs> 1950 through 1974, the Civil Aeronautics Board did not authorize a single new airline entrant. 1978, Airline Deregulation Act of 1978 removed federal control over airline fares, routes, and market entry and phased out the CAB. The rest 
is more history. From what I said, did, did we miss anything, or is that a, a a good, an accurate summary leading up to deregulation? Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's accurate of you know what some of the major laws were. I'd add you know Federal Aviation uh, Act in the fifties, very important on the safety side. But but as we think about it, I I think the way to conceive of the history and and what I describe in the book is really a set of phases. So. You know, the very early phase we can we can sort of put aside. It's not as interesting for, for our purposes, I think. But, you know, from the Wright brothers through the 1920s, you really have this period where, you know, aviation is, is very much in its infancy. And the major player, oddly, perhaps, is the post office. And, and airmail subsidies are what gets this industry off the ground in a period where really needs that kind of startup uh, uh, capital and, and, and uh, firmness of of someone who's willing to fly and that's and that's the post office in, the, in those early days the first big era for for our purposes i think that that matters is from the 30s to the 70s and and as you mentioned you know the real marquee moment in the 30s is the passage of the civil, civil aeronautics act in 1938 and what congress wanted to do was create a stable reliable airline system and one that had access across the whole country because the country uh, is gigantic. I mean, you know, to be fair, we are a humongous country. There's lots of towns and cities all over the place. And they wanted to make sure there was access everywhere, not just in the biggest cities or on the coasts or something, but that lots of parts of the country had access. And the challenge they faced is they, they as, I, as I mentioned before, thought, you know, airlines are not a normal business. This is not a regular competitive industry. It's a kind of infrastructure that has these network effects. We want there to be access everywhere in the country. And we also recognize scale is really important. And the concern that they had was that if there was just pure competition, no regulation, you'd have one of two things. Either there'd be too much competition, in which case the airlines would be going bankrupt. They would need subsidies. Um, and that's what was happening in the 1930s, by the way, that led mm-hmm. to the law. Mm-hmm. Or they would all massively consolidate into a very small number of airlines uh, after there were the bankruptcies. <laughs> and then you would have monopolies and there would be all the problems that are standard with monopolies. And so what Congress tried to do was create a kind of Goldilocks system between too much competition and too little. And the idea there was we'd have regulated competition. And so the Civil Aeronautics Board, the regulator, their job was to allocate routes to the airlines. And what that meant was an airline might get a route that is, you know, pretty profitable, has a lot of high volume. You know, maybe you're going uh, uh, San Francisco to Los Angeles, but you're also going to get a route that is not really high volume, that doesn't have a lot of people flying on it. Maybe go San Francisco or Seattle to someplace in Alaska. That ensured that we had geographic access to some of these places that are more remote or smaller. Um, and the airlines could had a combination of those things. The second thing that they did is they regulated prices. And so that changed over time, over the course of 40 years. We could talk about how, if that's of interest. But that was the other part of the story. And, you know, the way to think about this in a way is is kind of like the post office. You know, we, we pay the same price for sending a stamp, whether you're sending it like down the street or whether you're sending it to a different city or whether you're sending it to Alaska. Some of those are more expensive than others. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, sending it to a letter to Alaska is more expensive than down the street, but but that all balances out on the back end for for the post office, and, and that same principle was at work in this period for the airlines. And what the Civil Aeronautics Board tried to do was, you, you mentioned there were no new entrants who were brought in in that period, um, which is true. But what they tried to do and did was 
there were still some dominant airlines in the 30s that had a lot of market share. And over time, what they tried to do is shrink theirs by giving more routes to some of the other airlines. So you had a better balance, even if it wasn't adding a lot of new ones. You had a bunch of airlines that all were doing pretty well and had a pretty good size, but not too big and and not too small. And and that was sort of the model through that period. And what happened in the 70s is is this really got got challenged in a significant way by folks who said, actually, airlines are kind of like other businesses, and this system looks like a government-run cartel, and we don't like it. And what we should do is let airlines fly wherever they want, whenever they want, and charge whatever they want, and things will be better. And, and the prediction was that this would increase competition. There would be lower prices. There wouldn't really be any downsides. And that was that was the pitch. And, and Congress bought that and in 78 deregulated the industry. Well, I'm, I'm actually going to jump ahead to one of the questions because it, it plays in with what you just said here. In 1971, the load factor, the the system-wide load factor for all airlines was 48%. That means that one out of every two seats was not sold and was operated empty. That's not sustainable. It, we, you, you talk about scale, you talk about the cost of the industry, that's just not sustainable. At the same time, there was also more a moratorium on new routes with only two approved between 1969 and 1974. Now, take post-deregulation, 238 new routes were launched in the first month, and the load factors today are now in the 80s. Also, between 1950 and 1974, nine firms applied for entry into interstate flying, and zero were granted approval. Wouldn't you say that we now have an an improvement over what that system was in the 70s. So let me say a few things about this. So first on the last point about entry from 50 to 74, you know, part of that story is what I just said. They what they tried to do was increase the shares of smaller airlines that were already approved mm. and decrease the shares of the really big airlines so that there would be more competition among the airlines that existed. So that's that's one thing. And you know, you may agree or disagree with that choice, but there's an argument for why they did that. It wasn't that they were against competition. It's just there were a bunch of airlines already. Instead of having a brand new one, let's strengthen some of the ones that are quite small. So th- that that's that's what was going on there. I think that the challenge in the 1970s, you mentioned load factors, is that, that there were a number of things going on right in that period that are really critical. So one is that in the late 60s, the airline spent a lot of money on wide-bodied jets, a whole fleet of wide-bodied jets. That's a huge capital expenditure for the airlines. And what that meant... Uh, is that the airlines had to go to the regulators and say, hey, we want to be able to raise prices to cover this big capital expenditure. The way it worked at that time was the um, airlines were guaranteed a certain rate of return on their investments and prices were were regulated um, and, and the regulators set those prices. And so if they wanted to raise prices because you know, they needed to cover this additional expense, um, they had to go ask for that. So, so they go, they ask for higher prices. Um, this coincides with a big economic cra- crisis in the country. There's high inflation. There's the oil shocks. Demand is down in this period. Um, and so people aren't flying as much either. And part of the reason in this period that there was a route moratorium on, on new routes was exactly this. The regulators were concerned about the viability of the airlines, which had higher costs because of these expenses, gas prices, and uh, their capital expenditures that they were still paying off. And also, there was less demand. And so the worry was, if we have a proliferation of all these new routes, um, we'll see even more problems for these airlines, and we don't want them to be going bankrupt and going under. 
And so that was the situation. Again, you may agree or disagree with what the, the cab decided to do, but there was a logic to how they were they were thinking about making sure the industry wouldn't go through even more of a crisis in the economic crisis of that that period. By the time we get to deregulation in 78, of which all, all the points you made were arguments by the deregulators for why we should deregulate, why the system wasn't working. You know, one person in that period even said, you know, under deregulation, we'll have a system where there'll be up to 200 efficient airlines operating competitively. I mean, that sounds like a ridiculous thing to say now. I mean, we definitely don't have that. <laughs> but what happened after deregulation, I think, wasn't the dream world that the deregulators proposed. It was actually more like the Hunger Games. And and so what you had was exactly what you said. All these new entrants coming in, new routes, new new airlines. I mean, there was New York Air and People Express. And um, I don't know about you. I haven't flown either of those airlines. Uh, and, and the reason why is they don't exist anymore. And they don't exist because even though they came in with super cheap fares, no unions in their workforces, they only flew the uh, high profit, high volume routes. They weren't flying to rural Alaska. That's expensive and not enough money in it. They did all those things. They offered no frills, just peanuts service. But the big airlines fought back and they had some weapons of their own. And, you know, they would do things like if you were a new entrant and you had a 10 a.m. flight, they would put one at 958, one at 10.02, uh, undercut you on the price. Um, they have better service. They have a bigger network. They could do that and and do it for a while because they have so many other routes and so much other scale that they could withstand losing money on some of those routes just to push out these airlines. And so by the end of the 80s, you know, there's been dozens of bankruptcies and mergers. Almost all these new entrants are gone. And now you have the same airlines that were dominant in the 70s under regulation, but they're now just unregulated. And, you know, if you think about today, the big four airlines collectively have a larger market share than they did in 1977 under regulation. So we actually have less competition now than we had under the regulated system. And and in fact, this is exactly what the people who were against deregulation predicted was going to happen was you would see a bunch of competition and then you would see a lot of consolidation. And it's because the economics of the industry are such that bigger is better. And you need that scale. You need that network efficiency. But once you have it, it also allows you to really ferociously push out other entrants um, on these airlines. That's why we partly have seen the kind of move over many decades where you get, you know, low cost carriers or ultra low cost carriers coming in, but then, you know, they get bought up by somebody or merge. And and that's been pretty much the story in waves over the last few decades. So we talked about there's four big carriers now. That's not ideal. Ideally, there would be more competition. But Let's look at airfares. Before deregulation, people didn't fly. Now it's actually open to the masses. Just about everyone flies. Every, it's, it's within reach of most people. Just to give you one small example, growing up in San Francisco in the late 70s, when family members would go to Sri Lanka, they would talk about $1,000. You would need $1,000 to get from San Francisco to Colombo back then. It was, a, it was a fortune. Here we are in 2023. This is like 40, almost 50 years later. And just pulling up right now, there are tickets for less than a thousand dollars, and that's that's because of deregulation. You could take a number of U.S. carriers or alliances to get there. Even if we look at domestically, it's not a lot of money to get from coast to coast as it was back then. What are your thoughts on that? Isn't that a good thing? I agree with much things you said, but not because of deregulation. That's that's the part I, I I'm not I, I'm not with you on, and, and and let me explain why. I think it's absolutely right. Prices are lower now than they were before deregulation. And in fact, if you look at a chart starting in 1978, 
you look at prices, you'll see they're going down at a pretty consistent rate from then you know, afterwards. What's really interesting, though, is if you pull that chart backwards and start it in 1950, prices were going down the entire time at about the same rate from 1950 all the way through before and after deregulation. And average prices, there isn't a huge drop right at deregulation or in the couple of years after that. So the first thing is overall, you know, we saw decreasing prices continually beforehand too. So it's not obvious that deregulation was the thing that, that contributed to this. They were going down before. In fact, the other thing that was happening is passenger volumes were going up. You know, there's always some ups and downs here and there, economy and other things. But, you know, from the 50s onward, more and more people are flying. And and that was the case before. And that's continued. More and more people are flying. So, again, it's not obvious to me first that, that that's the case. The second thing is that even pr- proponents of deregulation admitted in the 1980s was that while some fares had gotten cheaper after deregulation, some had gotten more expensive. And I think that's another thing that we need to think about is a kind of reallocation of who's paying and what's more expensive and what's what's cheaper. And part of that today is a story about competition. In places where you have an ultra-low-cost carrier, um, in places where you have a lot of competition, prices are cheaper. In, pla- in routes where there isn't, prices are more expensive. Um, it's exactly what you'd expect from how economics works, that competition uh, leads to better prices, but we don't have competition in some routes, and we do, and we do in others, and to different degrees. So I think that's that's a place where there's been big, big, big differences. The second thing is there are always trade-offs, and one of the other downsides is the access that we've lost. Seventy-four cities have lost service from one of the big carriers since COVID. There are some cities, Dubuque, Iowa, Toledo, Ohio, that don't have any major carrier service anymore at all. There are some cities that now guarantee the revenue to one of the bigger airlines just to get them to fly there. Cheyenne, Wyoming, you know, agrees to pay the airlines if they if they don't make enough money off of that flight. And that was true even before COVID. There's a question of if you want to think about some of the other downsides. You know, what does it mean to a community that doesn't have airline service? Well, it means people can't get there for vacation or to be tourists. It means no one really wants to start. You know, if you're if you're from that town and you have the idea for the next like Fortune 500 business as an entrepreneur, you're not going to start it in a place that doesn't have any airports or that doesn't have air service or that only has one flight a day to Florida on 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 a, on a, on a small airline. You need that connectivity, and and that's a downside to the system that we have. And so so I think there's a lot of trade offs, but but just on pricing, the kind of simple view that well it was more expensive and then got cheaper, I think really misses that you know, actually prices have been going down pretty consistently the whole time. I grew up in Dubuque. Uh, I appreciate you using Dubuque as the example, but I've talked about this several times in the past. Even living in Dubuque, when we had air service, we would drive a lot of times to a a larger airport. We would drive to Cedar Rapids. We would drive to Madison. We would drive to the Quad Cities, even when Dubuque had the service, because we were able to fly nonstop places. We, we wouldn't have to connect through Minneapolis to get everywhere, or maybe the um, the times were better. And the drive from Dubuque to Cedar Rapids is no different than someone in the western suburbs of Denver driving to DIA. It's, it's about the same distance and time. While yes, it would be great to have service in Dubuque, it just isn't necessary, I, I would say, because you have so many other options around. That would be like saying, hey, we should have an airport on the western side of Denver and one on the eastern side of Denver, and one on the northern side, so people don't have to drive as far. 
I understand the EAS, the Central Air Service, communities that are hundreds of miles from the closest airport. But when you have so many different options in a, a very small area, like you do in a lot of the South, a lot of the Midwest, a lot of the East Coast, airplanes, pilots, crews, they are a finite resource. If In a perfect world, if we had unlimited supply of airplanes and crews, then yeah, you could have service everywhere. But we, we just don't have that. So before well, you wait, came but, on, but that's but it. that's but that's artificial, right? I mean, it's not that we don't. It's not that we couldn't have more airplanes, pilots, flights, right? I mean, we we could. We we don't, but we could, right? So I mean, there, there's a tension here too, which is the way these systems work is a function of policy choices, right? We could subsidize things more or less. We could regulate them in one way or another way. We could encourage certain activities or other activities. Part of how we design the system is based on what things we want to value and don't want to value. And, you know, I, I, I haven't looked right now, but I imagine if we looked up, you know, Cedar Rapids, um, there's probably not that many nonstop flights to that many places coming out of Cedar Rapids now. For the same reason that that there aren't to a lot of other places that are that are smaller cities, and so you know, I, I think there's just trade offs across the board here. And if, and if you are some of the folks that I've I've talked to in Dubuque would say uh, would disagree and say they're like deeply worried about having losing losing service and what that means for their community, for its economy, and and for the people who live there. I, I think there's real concerns about that for for folks in some of these places. When when we did fly to Dubuque, the flights were always empty, anyways. Like so this is so that's it's a great it's a great point. So this is one of the challenges is you're always going to have less volume to smaller places. Right. And they're more expensive. This is the question about do you only want to have this resource flying to places where there's a high volume of people or do you think of this as basic infrastructure? And so let, let me give you another example. It's really expensive to put electric lines to go out to rural places. You know, maybe one house, two, three, five. Yet as a country, at some point we said, you know, we actually think people who live in rural areas should have access to electricity. And that's going to be extremely expensive for some of those folks, but we want them to have it. Even though it's a low volume thing, the electric company is not going to make any money off of it. They're going to really lose money because of the capital cost of doing that. But that's a policy goal. People might disagree about that. Some people might say, I'm okay with not having access to a bunch of these places. Um, but I think we need to be honest about making that trade-off and saying, sure, we think the small communities shouldn't have that. I, I tend to think the other way, that transportation is a kind of basic infrastructure that's important for the economy, for the country, for geographic opportunity and and, and addressing geographic inequality and for economic growth. And so I think as a policy matter, I want to have that in lots of different places. Totally get that other people might disagree about it. But there's just a trade-off there, and we have to decide if we want to make that. And that's why I think it's like electricity or broadband in rural areas. I think that's just a utility, and so we should offer it. And sure, it's going to be expensive. Sure, there's fewer users. I think that's okay. Are you familiar with Archer Aviation? I know of them, but not maybe not. I'm, I'm sure I don't know as much as you, as you two know about well, them. Well, Archer, Archer is a company that's trying to make an electric air vehicle that seats between 20 and 30 people. And, and their vision is that it'll fly from Chicago to Dubuque to Gary to pick any any small city there. They're, they're talking about doing San Francisco to Fresno and Bakersfield and all these. I would say that's, in a way, kind of the market fig- figuring itself out, saying, if we want to have service come back to these small cities, we need to innovate and, and we need to come up with ways. And there are these companies who are doing that right now. Archer is just one example. There are at least half a dozen companies out there, startups, who are doing these 
electric vehicle or electric air vehicles that the whole goal is to bring service back to some of the smaller cities economically so that there aren't these big losses for the airlines and the companies who are operating it. And one of the other things I talk, I talk a little bit about this in the book, one of the other benefits of this, if you know they are able to develop this technology is, you know, if you want to have a bunch of smaller flights uh, that may or may not have a lot of volume on them, um, having them be electric is important if you care about climate change, because part of the challenge of flying is, you know, it's very fossil fuel intensive way of traveling. Um, and so especially for these shorter flights, if you could do that in a way that would be, uh, you know, mostly just tied into the grid, you'd, you'd be better off um, with, with electric or, or sustainable aviation fuels, too. So, you know, th- that's also, I think, a, a quite promising thing about that uh, set of technologies. And, and that's a place where I think policy can get involved, too, because if you imagine, you know, what it takes to do that, you know, that's a kind of research and development task that historically the federal government has often invested in in cutting edge technology and, and research. And that's a great you know place for either direct federal spending or, um, you know, as we've seen historically in other areas for the companies themselves who are going to benefit from this to to invest a little bit more in these cutting edge technologies too. Ganesha, I think one of your solutions, which was interesting that we were talking about before you came on the show is uh, basically a civil aeronautics board that protects these small cities like Dubuque, like Cheyenne, where the airlines would, you talked about draft picks, where you'd be, you'd have to fly there, right? But you get to pick which cities you fly to, and instead of the taxpayer paying, the airlines would fly them. They may take a loss. They're going to make that up in profits in other areas. I think that might be a solution, but then Doug mentioned these electric planes. You know, it's much better if this can happen organically in ways where you can make a profit flying Dubuque to Chicago or to Minneapolis. So I think maybe the energy should be spent supporting these electric aircraft companies to come to fruition where they can offer a competitive product where we can make a profit and we're not expecting airlines to take a loss on certain routes. Let me let me just for for fun here take take the opposite side of that. So so imagine you have my kind of NFL draft idea and just to say a little bit more about it, basically the idea is that, you know, there'd be a set of cities that don't have much service or, or any service. They're sort of like the players. The biggest airlines are like the teams. They each get a number um, and they get to pick whatever city they want from the list. And we just keep going through until all the cities have been picked. And so if you're an airline, you could pick, you know, cities that are close to your hubs, things that will strengthen networks that you have that, you know, where you think there's a lot of traffic that'll um, be helpful for other cities that you have, that, that kind of thing. As you said, what would be great about that system is, you know, taxpayers wouldn't have to pay for millions of dollars for the EAS. Um, it would the airlines would figure out how to make the math work on the back end. But one better thing about this for innovation is if you are one of the big airlines and you have the obligation then as a public service matter to serve some of these more smaller remote cities, you then have a much bigger incentive to make sure that these electric airplanes that can fly these smaller distances, that that technology gets off the ground and that you want to start buying those planes. And if you want to start buying those planes because you have the obligation to serve these routes, then there's a market for the people who are making those right. planes to know, hey, that. I'm going to be able to sell this plane mm-hmm. to Delta. I'm going to be able to sell it to United, to American. That's a positive thing, too. So part of the way that I think we need to think about this is a lot of people just think regulation's bad or is a problem. But actually, in a bunch of places, regulation forces people to come up with new ideas or to be more creative and it can build demand for things that don't exist. 
And this would be a place to kind of harness that regulation to say, yeah, you're going to have to serve some of these places. But what that means is there's a much bigger incentive for them to invest in this. And I think we might actually get the technologies up faster if the biggest airlines had a real stake in in wanting that technology because they want to fly these routes, because they have to. I, I think we uh, just solved this problem right here just now on the show about small city air travel. <laughs> yeah. Ganesh, I've, I've got a question. Uh, I, I feel like we're kind of living in this like real world experiment. If, if you look to the east of here, if you, if you look to Europe, we've got open skies agreements with Europe, meaning any airline can enter any route that they want from North America to Europe. We're seeing this. Uh, we saw it play out prior to COVID. COVID kind of changed things. And now it's starting to come back. You've got Delta who flies from Raleigh. American flies from Raleigh to Paris to London. Delta was trying Indianapolis to Amsterdam. That was never done in, in the regulated time. But then if you look west of here to Asia, right now, there's only 24 daily flights between the United States and China. That's it. And those flights are incredibly expensive because the capacity is limited based on the government's saying, hey, we're only doing 24 flights. Anytime a new Tokyo route opens up, each airline has to apply for it and say why we are going to do a better job than our competitor. And that that's driving or it's it's squandering this demand to those places because there isn't this this open flow of, hey, the, the market is dictating that we, we could do 15 flights a day between Portland and Tokyo, but you can only do one because that's what's regulated right now. So it, it, is there data that shows that the open skies with Europe is better or worse than some of these slot controlled routes to Asia? I'd have to look specifically on that question comparing Europe and Asia. But the bigger the, the thing I would say for thinking about both of these systems in conjunction with, you know, U.S. domestic airline policy, which is which is mostly what I focus on, is that there's a pretty big difference between the international context and the domestic context. And and part of that difference is that governments around the world have very different policies in how they think about the airline industry. You know, in some places you have state-run airlines, some places you have massive state subsidies into airlines, they have different internal governance of how they think about these systems. I think one of the challenges is that that's a hard thing to translate into our own domestic context. Now, certainly, you know, in terms of what the demand is and, and where the access is, this can be done better or worse, right? And it might be that having more openness is is strongly positive. It might be that it's not viable in some cases because you also can't, you know, tell a foreign government, this is what we need you to do. And then they're necessarily going to do it, right? They get to, they, you know, they'll do what they want to do also within their own interest. And so I, I think there are some challenges in the foreign context that feel to me, less translatable to, to what we can do domestically, in part just because so much of it is often tied up into geopolitics and the and the way that that countries see airlines as potentially their own national champions that they subsidize heavily or want to be, uh, in some ways, you know, brands for the country itself, which you know is something special about the airline industry that that people even think of it that way, which is not usually true of of most businesses. Ganesh, one of the things that you talked about in your book or one of the recommendations you made is nationalizing the entire system. Just combine everyone, create one national carrier. We've seen that around the world, and it, it doesn't always work out to the benefit of really anyone. Look at Air India. Air India was nationalized. The 
service wasn't great. They now have privatized. They were bought by the Tata Group. You've got ITA now, which came out of the ashes of Alitalia. The government just kept pumping money into it, and it really wasn't doing anything. What is your vision for a nationalized? Like, what what would a nationalized carrier in the U.S. look like to you? Yeah. So, so in the book, what I do is um, I try to propose a bunch of different ideas uh, that I'm not particularly attached to any of them. Honestly, the, the idea of the what I do at the end of the book is to just try to get us to imagine different ways of thinking about governing airlines that take seriously the basic premise that this is a business where there's a lot of benefits to scale and that bigger is better. And so obviously the biggest and most scale-oriented version of thinking about airlines in the United States would just be to have one because then it would fly everywhere. And that's the point about raising the question of a national carrier, which is it is the one that would have all the scale. It would fly to every place. It would have all bigness. You would have no worries about who you're flying, when you're flying, where you're flying. There'd only be one option. And, and I also talk about what some of the downsides are. Of course, you wouldn't have competition. Um, and, you know, we often see that when you have these monopolistic systems without any competition at all, you know, that's a real a real problem. Um, and, and maybe you don't want nationalization because you don't want the government running the airline. So, so a second option is you could have one airline regulated like a private uh, – as a private company but regulated as a public utility. And this is actually AT&T in the middle of the 20th century was a single national public utility for telephones. One of the most innovative enterprises in maybe in the history of the world, you know, ran Bell Labs, which produced all these Nobel Prize winners and amazing technologies. You know, that's another kind of system. But – but if you don't like that system, you could have still a lot of scale with a kind of public option and a single private carrier. That's actually what Australia had before deregulation was a two airline policy, you know, one private, one public, and they competed against each other. And there are some studies that show that when you have one public and one private actor, you get better pricing than just a private actor because the public keeps them in check and you get better quality than just a public actor because the private actor keeps the public one in check on quality. Um, so that's another possibility. And then I and then I have a bunch of ideas about, forget all of that. Let's say we just want to keep a system more like what we have, which I think is, you know, the more likely place we would go. You know, what, what are some more modest kinds of regulations or, or proposals? And that's where I talk about the draft pick cities and so on. And so to, to, to your point, I, I do think the path in the nationalization approach is is quite checkered. I mean, you gave some good examples of places where they don't, it doesn't seem to have worked that well. There are some, you know, one book talk I gave, someone told, said, they, they said that the challenge they have is they have no way of figuring out how to run airlines because some of the best airlines they've ever flown in the world are state-run airlines. You know, you're Cutter, Singapore, Emirates, and some are, mm. some of the worst they've ever mm. flown in the world are state-run airlines. So what do we make of that? And and I think there's an interesting question of of that that is, you know, bigger than the scope I could think about in the book. But to me, that's like not where American public policy is going to go anyway in, in the near to medium term, however you want to define near or medium term. <laughs> and so 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 but I raise it as a question of, you know, let's think seriously about scale instead of having this fantasy that, oh, yes, this is an industry where there's going to be 200 competitive airlines all flying everywhere um, and there'll be no downsides to anything. I mean, that's unrealistic. We know that's unrealistic. So well, let's start from the other side and then let's discuss some of the trade-offs. And the, the point there is really to open our imagination because I think where we've really been in the last 30 or 40 years 
is in a place without much imagination of thinking about different ways to govern this industry. And my hope is if we just start thinking a little more creatively, you know, I put out some ideas like the draft pick one. I bet there's a thousand more interesting ideas. It's just that we haven't spent a lot of time thinking about how to solve problems here. Because for a large, you know, in large part, I think people have just accepted that, you know, it is what it is. And as people get more frustrated and as people ask the question, like, wait a minute, when they're making bajillions of dollars pre-COVID, then COVID happens, they run to Congress for taxpayer support. That doesn't seem right. What about all the profits in those early days? You know, I think people have real questions about these things. And we need to have a conversation as a country about how we do this, because it can't be the case that people are more and more irritated about flying and that taxpayers are, are providing support to the industry and that in good years, though, there's a lot of profit to the industry and that places are losing service and, 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 and that we say we're just going to let it go. I, I think there, there, that we should have a discussion about that and, and really discuss what the trade-offs are and think about where we want to make those make those trade-offs in an honest and open way. We have so many more questions, but we got to finish. We could go another hour. <laughs> so the title <laughs> of the book is Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It. Let's talk about the miserable part. So Doug and I have an issue with you on that. <laughs> Because I feel there's a lot of good. We see the major carriers, at least, improving their products. We have airline lounges, which we didn't used to have, that are proliferating. So if you have some status, you can buy it. It's a very nice experience. The onboard product, in a lot of ways, is getting better. They're adding TV screens on Delta, United, JetBlue, for example. So we do see some improvement in the quality. Doug took a flight uh, on Southwest in the back you know, in a regular economy seat, and it was not bad. So what would you say to that? Uh, things are getting better in some areas. It's not all miserable. There's always some things that are better and some things that are worse. But but what I will say is I have never heard anyone I talk to, Doug, Doug maybe, you're, maybe you're an exception to this, but I've never heard anyone say to me, oh, I just had the most amazing flight where I was sitting in the middle in the back and there were two people next to me and we had no leg room because our bags underneath, you know, were, were tight in there. And also one of the best things was that they built a plane with 100 people flying, but only space for eight overhead bags. And it was great because I got to gate check my bag. Like nobody says that. Nobody says that they love connecting through Dallas or Atlanta or Charlotte or anywhere else. People don't enjoy those parts of the experience. And so even though I think there have been some benefits, I think there's a lot of downsides that are important and that are a function of some of the things we've talked about. I mean, so, you know, going back to the the price transparency and the complexity of those things, I mean, get into point systems. I mean, these things are so complicated now. And you see Delta, for example, massive public outcry when they restructured their system earlier this year to make it harder to get some of those status perks like access to the lounges and so on. And so I, I think there's a bunch of places where people are frustrated about some of these things. You know, so, to be fair, some of the things people are most frustrated about are not a function of airline policy. I think a lot of people are frustrated by TSA. Yeah. You're, you're always going to have lines. a middle seat. What... People are frustrated about weather issues and weather delays, right? And so, so there's some of those things. But in a lot of other places, you know, I think there are things that um, that are a function. You know, you, you think about some of the 
situations where passengers are unruly and get upset on these airplanes and do these horrible things, sometimes violence or yelling at people and, and all this kind of stuff. Part of that is the experience too, right? When you're really tight in there and you don't have much legroom, for some set of people, they may be more triggered by that when somebody pushes the seat back and, and they don't have a lot of space, right? I mean, that's part of the story of misery as well. As long as those things keep happening, it's not surprising to me that some set of people having been through TSA, then getting onto the plane, getting in the back in a small seat, and then the person in front of them puts their seat back. Like, there's a I, lot of variations of people. I'm, I'm pretty patient. Some people aren't. You know, and there are some well, hotheads who are going to – but that's a problem, and, and I think that's a solvable problem. Well, I, I, I think um, – And so that, that's part of the story of misery. It's all those things. But, but I think we could talk all day. So it, it's a balance. I think we agree it's a balance between a balance. regulation regulation and capitalism. We could regulate that all seats are live flat and there are four-course meals on every flight and it wouldn't be as miserable. But guess what? It'll be back to where – Flying is not accessible for people, right? If we have it be a lot more expensive. If, it would be a lot more expensive if we did that. But so I, I think don't we think agree it's reasonable to just... say that we should have some minimums on seats, both in width and in length. That those might also but, be related to why, how yeah, but, tall and but you know big people but, are, right? I mean, there there, there right. are things we can do there too. Yeah, but wouldn't that be better solved organically? If there's an airline that has a small seat, then you don't fly that airline. So the airline that is offering a better product. That's the one you buy. Isn't that better than having regulation fix the problem? So I think there's I think there's two problems with that. One is the one I mentioned before, which is the market's not going to solve that problem because of the competitive dynamics that there's a bunch of places where you don't have choices. So you actually can't say I'm going to fly a different airline if there's no other option. The second thing I think that's a challenge is, especially when it comes to seat sizes, I mean, this isn't just a question of comfort. This is also a safety question. It's about can you get in and out if there's a crisis and, and what does that mean? And so, you know, I don't think seats are, are a good example for this argument, especially, you know, as compared to say, you know, do you mandate that there's a three-course meal or a one-course meal or a snack or how much is the snack or, or whatever? That's something where I think we could say maybe we care a little bit less. You can also bring food from home. There's stuff like that, that that's, that's a more solvable one through, through market means potentially because there are other avenues for people. Seats, I think, are hard because of the combination of the safety issue as well. It's a real conundrum, right? Because we want to offer more choices, Right. But in the meantime, you have the DOJ currently looking at this merger between Spirit and JetBlue. That would actually create some significant competition for the major carriers who have most of the traffic. It's a big picture thing. Do we want to maintain a low fare carrier or do we want a fifth network carrier? And I'm just asking because I don't know. I mean, what is the answer? Do we want more network carriers to compete with each other for better fares or do we want low fare carriers that offer very little and a lot of misery because you pay for a gate check bag and you don't get all the the service that a network carrier would offer. So it's it's real interesting to see what what will happen. You mentioned that all you were trying to do is just create discussion. Oh, you have you've had multiple different <laughs> yeah, exactly, multiple different recommendations, some that we agree with, some that we don't. The final question that I have and then uh, if if Drew has any more, he can ask. The final question I have is how has this been received by readers? How has it been received on your book tour? And have you had discussions yet with anyone in Congress? Because I know that you said that this is meant for policy. It's meant to get in front of the eyes of the policy makers. What's the reaction been? Yeah, the reaction has been really good. I mean, I'd say the first thing is 
everyone has their favorite story to complain about in flying. So because of that, uh, there's a lot of people who are interested in the book and and nobody really knows the history and people haven't spent a lot of time. I mean, you know, why, why would you have if, unless you're, you know, an, an av geek, like you said, you, you wouldn't have, have necessarily learned all this. And so I think people have been really interested in learning about this and in and open to having a conversation in a way that probably wouldn't have been true 10 or 20 years ago. But I think after all the you know cancellations last year and the COVID situation and everything, um, I think people understand that there's something different and we need to think differently about this. So, so that's one one part. I think among the the policymakers, um, I've had a few who have who have reached out. So TBD on on if it goes anywhere or if they're interested in doing anything more. But but there at least seems to be some folks who think this is an interesting set of conversations to start having. And, you know, to my to my mind, like I said, part of this is to start a conversation. I, I of course, also have some ideas I like better than other ones. That's why I put out a lot of different options. But I think having that conversation is an important part of this. And as part of the book tour, I've been surprised at how many people are excited about that conversation, even if they have different views about how to think about the industry um, there, there's a lot of excitement about thinking like, well, how do we how do we solve some of these problems instead of just assuming we can't do anything about it? Ganesh, I will say, I admit, when I started reading your book, I started off very skeptical because you talked about it being miserable and it seemed like a lot of complaints. Right. But you you talk a lot about solutions. The, so you talk about regulated capitalism. I like that because it's not bad. I think for capitalism to thrive, you need some guardrails. Or you have no competition, right? Because we're all working for Amazon and Apple. If there's no comp- <laughs> if there's no guardrails, right? So you need some regulation to make capitalism successful. And I think that's what you talk about: regulated capitalism. The question is the balance of regulation and capitalism. Everyone might not agree with all of Ganesh's points, but Doug and I both enjoyed your book. I really enjoyed your book. I don't. Doug will tell you I don't read a lot. I have a very short attention span, but I went through that book in three days because I it was so interesting and it was a good review. Your people reached out to us and and said you would be perfect on, and all Drew said was, "Oh no, another book that I have to read." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you know, this is someone who doesn't you know doesn't like reading books. So for the listeners, read this book if only for the history lesson in commercial aviation. It was really good review for me and a really good introduction for everyone else. If you're unfamiliar with the history of US, the U.S. aviation or even just vaguely familiar, Ganesh's research into what shaped what we are today is top-notch. I learned a lot of things I didn't know about the industry I've been working in since I was 18 or 19 years old. So thank you very much. Drew and I both have degrees in aviation. And I can say also that I learned a lot about the business side by reading this book. And as you said, we can agree to disagree on some of the ways forward. But that shouldn't stop anyone from picking up a copy of why flying is miserable and how to fix it. Ganesh, it was great having you on. Good luck with the rest of your book tour. Good luck getting this conversation, I I don't want to say started, but continuing it and and getting it in front of the right people. Thanks so much for having me. This has been really fun, and uh, I'm excited to now be be an av geek officially. Yes, welcome. (laughs) Welcome to our world. I told you, we'd pull it out of you. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And you know, if if you're on a flight and you're like, oh my God, this is really good, come back on the show and tell us, hey, I had a flight that wasn't miserable. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely, definitely. Like I said, I start with flying is a miracle. Because yeah, there you go. <laughs> it really is. It's an amazing thing. You're buttering and, um, us up, <laughs> and you know, yeah, you, you can't you can't spend uh, as you said, you don't spend many years and and a lot of effort writing a book about it if you don't really enjoy and care about the process in the industry too. Doug and I work for a major carrier, as do some of our listeners, and there's another 
podcast called Non-Rev Lounge, where they work for another major carrier, and I will tell you that the two of us definitely will be working to make travel as less miserable <laughs> or as enjoyable as we can. We try and do that every day, so Ganesh, we, we will continue doing that. Thanks, Ganesh. To our friends and contributors, this podcast is your show, so go on our website, nexttripnetwork.com, and let us know what's on your mind so we can talk about it or give us your feedback. You can also follow us on Instagram at Next Trip Podcast. Please tell your friends about us so we can reach more people who love aviation and travel. Before we go, what's the best way for people to find your book? Is it on Amazon? Is it a, a, a link you want us to post? You can find it anywhere where books are sold online, probably in person too, uh, though they might have to order it for you. But yeah, check it out. Amazon or you know Barnes & Noble uh, Bookshop, which is a network of independent bookstores, um, anywhere you like. So you can also reach us at Next Trip Podcast by calling our Google voice number to ask a question or just rant about something. The number is 872-529-5620 when calling from the U.S. Make sure to use the country code 001 or plus one when calling from abroad. Thanks to all of our friends and contributors for your support. And for joining the conversation, we'll see you next week. And in the meantime, stay aviation tough. This has been the Next Trip Podcast. Visit nexttripnetwork.com for information about previous episodes, trip reviews, aviation photos, and other aviation-related content. This is your show, so search for The Next Trip on Twitter and let Doug and Drew know what you want to talk about. Not on Twitter? You can also email them at nexttrip.podcast at gmail.com. Please consider leaving a review wherever you download your podcasts. It will help other listeners like you discover this show. 